Welcome. You're listening to Building the Backend, a podcast for data architects, where we will uncover what's working and what's not across the data landscape. I'm your host, Travis Lawrence. Join me on a journey to understand the best patterns, tools, and frameworks for implementing modern data architectures. Each week, I'll interview data leaders and architects like the Vice President of Engineering at LinkedIn or the founder of Data Kitchen and employees at Microsoft and Google and many other top companies. To start off the new year, I have put together a quick 60-second survey to help me better understand how I can best serve you. Go to buildingthebackend.com slash survey to complete it. And if you do, your next coffee is on me, aka I will email you a Starbucks gift card. If you're hearing this message, then the survey is still live, so act fast and help me improve the podcast. Without further ado, let's jump into today's episode. Hey there, listeners. Travis Lawrence here. And I'm really excited about this next interview where we will dive deep into how to monetize, manage, and measure your data. To share his expert thoughts, I have brought Doug Laney on the mic. Doug Laney is a best-selling author and recognized authority on data and analytics strategy. Doug's book, Infonomics, How to Monetize, Manage, Measure Information for Competitive Advantage, was selected by CIO Magazine as the must-read book of the year. And one of the top five books for business leaders and tech innovators. Doug is now the Data and Analytics Strategy Innovation Fellow at West Monroe Partners. Previously, Doug was a distinguished analyst with Gartner's Chief Data Officer Research and Advisory Team and was a three-time Gartner Annual Thought Leadership Award recipient. In addition, he launched and managed the Deloitte Analytics Institute, is a Forbes contributing writer, and has been published in the Wall Street Journal and Financial Times, among other journals. Doug, welcome. <laughs> Thanks, Travis. Great to be with you. So say hello to Data Nation and tell us something interesting about yourself that most people don't know. Hey, Data Nation. This is a really uh, weird one. If you remember the, the film Risky Business, right? Yep. So the role of Tom Cruise played me in the role of Risky Business. The backstory <laughs> is that the junior achievement company that I was in in high school, where kids get together and start a company and are sponsored by a, a local business, we, we, we employed a little bit of hijinks in, in our, our product to help it sell. And a local screenwriter heard about what we had done and extrapolated on the idea and wrote Risky Business. Love it. You don't have that every day. <laughs> so jumping into it. Why did you write the book Infonomics? What drove you to that or what, I guess, problem or niche did you see in the marketplace? Yeah, I, I think the book was growing inside me for about 20 years or so and um, really was kind of busting to, to get out. I talked to a lot of writers and sometimes they, they feel that way. Sometimes they feel compelled to write a book. For me, it was just inside wanting to come out and it really all more or less started with, oddly enough, the 9-11 terror attacks and after that time, some clients, while I was at Gartner, came to us and they said, uh, you know, we, we not only, I mean, there was a tragic loss of life and, and property, but we also lost our data. Mm. This is in the days before a lot of cloud and offsite backups, so companies actually lost their data. And naturally, what they did was submit claims to their insurers for the value of the data they lost. And the insurers said, yeah, sorry, uh, we don't think that data constitutes property, Therefore, you know, we're not going to honor those claims. And so that kind of caught my attention. And I started wondering, why isn't data property? Isn't it an asset? And so I cracked open my, you know, accounting books from university and read what an asset is. And clearly an asset is something that's owned or controlled, exchangeable for cash and generates what accountants now call probable future economic benefits. And so clearly data meets those criteria. 
Now, what the the accounting profession did in its infinite wisdom was they realized they were a bit exposed because property and casualty policies weren't explicit about this. So they updated the commercial general liability policy standard template used by all insurers in the U.S. and copied abroad to explicitly exclude electronic data from PNC policies. They did that barely a month after 9-11 to add further insult to injury. And then the accounting profession said, hey, if the insurance industry isn't going to recognize data as a property, we're not going to recognize it as an asset. And on it goes. So it got me thinking about this concept of what is an asset and why don't we think about data as an asset? And perhaps, and the big hypothesis was maybe companies aren't really good at managing their data or generating value from it because they don't measure it. They're not compelled to measure it by accounting practices, even though it meets the criteria of an accounting asset. Yeah, that's a great why. In your book, 50% of respondents in an online Gartner poll mm-hmm. said that their company is not monetizing information in any way. Um, and there are yeah. different ways you go into how to monetize data. It's not necessarily right. external. It's also internal and stuff like that. What's the top mm-hmm. reason organizations fail to monetize their data? You know, I, I think there's a vision gap, but there's also performance gaps. So and when we help organizations measure the value and the potential value of their data, we look at these two kinds of gaps. One is the vision gap, which is they're not even thinking about ways to generate more value from data. It's never really crossed their mind. They are happy with using that data for a single purpose, for its original purpose, um, to facilitate maybe some kinds of transaction or to sell more stuff, or they are, and maybe they're reporting on it using some kind of reporting tool. But pretty much that's it. They're not thinking about that data as a resource beyond its operational and its reporting context. So there's a vision gap there. The the second is the performance gap, which is, um, you know, they have a data warehouse or they have a lot of data. And again, they're reporting on it, but they're not, they're positioned to be able to do more with it. They just are not for whatever reason. I, I just think a lot of it comes down to that they're not measuring it. There's the old adage that you can't manage what you don't measure. And I think because companies don't measure anything about their data, it's quality characteristics or it's, uh, performance or its economic value, that they're in a, they just don't manage it well. And, and if they're not managing it well, then they're in a poor position to monetize it. So I think it, a lot of it just, it starts with a failure to, to recognize data as an actual asset and everything that entails. Yep. That's yeah. a great point. Yeah. And you think that responsibility to determine that sort of that vision and more of innovation <clears throat> of that data falls on the chief data officer, if there is one, and if not, then probably more so the other VPs at the company? Yeah, for sure. For a long time, data has been treated and thought about as an IT asset. It's the I and IT. But only recently have companies started to think about those two separately. And it's something that I, I very much advocate for, which is that bifurcation of IT into separate I and T, managing information and technology distinctly. And that's given rise to the role of the chief data officer. CIOs have the information as their middle name, but they often behave as if infrastructure is their middle name, not information, not something that they're typically managing as, as the way that a the way that a, a CFO manages the chart of accounts or a head of you know retail manages the inventory. That's given rise to the separate role of the chief data officer. And, and very often, these chief data officers come from a business role because the company's starting to realize that data is a business asset, not a technology asset. There was a time when applications and data were very tightly coupled. There was the database buried inside a, a business application. That's a very 1990s way of thinking. Today, data and, app, data and the applications that that create and manage and store and use that data are and can be completely distinct. Yep. 
No, that yep. makes a lot of sense. In your book, you break down a lot of different ways of how to monetize data. What are some of the right. top ways that organizations should be looking to gain a competitive advantage or monetize their data? Wow, it's hard to point a finger, point to, to one way. Over the years, I've compiled a, a, a library of over 500 ways that organizations, exa- real-world examples of companies generating value from their, their data. And in my Infonomics book, I share about, I don't know, 40 or 50 of them. I'm working on a book now where I'm going to share over 100 different examples. It's just strictly a book of examples that will inspire people. The the art of the possible with data. That should be out sometime in the in the spring. When I've analyzed all of those examples, it occurs to me that there are a number of patterns that, that emerge. Some of them are about using data internally to generate economic value. Others are about exposing it more externally. I think the there's certainly an infinite new ways that companies can leverage data internally. There's an example of a manufacturing company that identified, they used the, the data valuation models that I published to identify data that had a, a high potential benefit to the organization, but currently was de- being deployed at a low level. And so they identified 20 ways to better leverage data within the organization. Like how do you use customer support data in the manufacturing business function? How do you use manufacturing data better in the sales function and so forth? Once they shared data and exposed data and embedded data better across business processes, they ended up adding $300 million on a $2 billion business. So that's just using it internally. Now, there might even be a bigger upside to leveraging it externally, to sharing, exposing, bartering or trading or even selling data products to partners or suppliers or customers or customers' partners and so forth. Companies need to think beyond not just their own four walls and their own immediate ecosystem of partners, suppliers, and customers. But what does that larger, more extended business ecosystem look like of partners and suppliers? And who might value some of this data that you're generating or or collecting today? And it's really not something that many organizations have explored. And um, something that I spend most of my time doing with clients, running workshops to help them ideate around that art of the possible with data. What are all the ways that they could generate value from it? And then we take them through a feasibility assessment to to look at the complexity versus the, the economic benefits of, of each of these ideas that are generated. In your book, you also discuss the different levels of information maturity. Do mm. organizations need a certain level of sort of information maturity before trying to monetize their data going down that journey? That's a great question. I don't know that there's a threshold, and it sort of depends on what kinds of data and what kind of industry and what kind of data monetization. Obviously, data needs to be fit for purpose, and that involves a degree of governance and data quality and data integration, data completeness, data accuracy, before you can really do much with it. Yeah, I don't think there's a a particular level of maturity. The, The problem more so that I see is that there's an imbalance of maturity. Companies have real sophisticated, modernized technology, but don't have a strategy to leverage it or don't have an architecture to to take advantage of it or don't have the roles or organization set up or governance or the opposite, where they have a, a great strategy and great skills, but their technology is really lagging, antiquated. So it's more about achieving some kind of balance and a trajectory than really what level you're at in terms of maturity. You want to look at things like culture and metrics and organization and roles and governance and how well data is being deployed and what your architecture is and then what your technology is. So there there are different aspects to to maturity. And and our maturity model at West Monroe looks at over 200 distinct different 
capabilities of an organization across those eight dimensions. And, and really, it's not about a score. It's about where are you today? Where do you want to be in 18 months or 36 months? And how to get there by improving in, in one area or another, or, or even capitalizing on areas that you have a strength in. So we'll We'll run a maturity assessment for an organization to find out that they're really strong in terms of architecture in one part of the business, and maybe they should use that as a blueprint for the entire enterprise. Those are the things that we'll uncover. Okay, great. Yeah. In your book, you also discuss that there should be a team or person in charge of curating, procuring data. Where does that responsibility typically fall today. Who's- Unfortunately, it, it falls on the data scientists a lot of the time right now, but that's not at all what data scientists want to be doing. No. Quickest way to get your data scientist to find another job, <laughs> to go find another job is to make him or her curate and harvest data, mm-hmm. right? They should be developing models and experimenting with it and drawing correlations and looking for causality and, and patterns, not having to curate and, uh, and identify data sources. Now, they may have ideas for what external data sources may exist. And you mentioned a concept, which I think is really important. Most companies have a, we think about data again as an asset. Most companies have a a procurement department, right? That's procuring office supplies and office furniture and or, or raw materials of some kind. Most companies do not, however, have anybody procuring data supplies. Again, this is a manifestation of us not truly embracing the concept of data as, a, as an asset. And so I think this role of a data curator or harvester or hunter, whatever you want to call it, is something that I think is one of the, the, the key roles, maybe after a data scientist for organizations today. There's so much external data out there that's available. There are uh, trillions of, you know, I think a trillion websites now that can be harvested. There are um, billions of social media posts. There are tens of millions of open data sets published by government organizations and NGOs. There's thousands or tens of thousands of data brokers, companies that are selling commercially aggregated data. And then for your own organization, you probably have hundreds of partners or customers or suppliers who might have data that could prove valuable to you. If you could get your hands on inventory levels of your suppliers, it might help you negotiate better deals with them or better deals for both parties. There's a lot of data out there and to, to not have anyone in the company who is dedicated to identifying those potentially useful data sets and figuring out how to make them available and integrated into your own you know, analytic work- workflow, I think is a tragic mistake for, for many organizations. And I might say one more thing about this, which is in this kind of post-COVID uh, world, m- many companies are challenged, their forecasts are challenged or yep. broken yep. outright by using historical data because the, the historical data is meaningless now. And so they're turning to more driver from trend-based to driver-based analytic solutions, which means that they need to be identifying external data assets that represent leading indicators of their business, not just staring at their own navels, their own historical belly buttons. That makes external data that much more important. And and there are hosts of data marketplaces as well out there. For We talk about monetizing data. So companies can not only purchase data from these marketplaces where others are selling them, but also put their data out there for sale. Right. And I'm really glad you brought up so that post-COVID world and how really that unfortunate sort of event has really transformed and accelerated this digital transformation that companies are being forced to make. And I was reading an article recently about how Starbucks is procuring sort of these data sets that they didn't have previously around mm-hmm. COVID numbers as well as sentiment in different areas. 
And they're mm-hmm. we're putting all of these different data sets into a model and providing that to the store manager for them to decide mm-hmm. how they should handle their... And, and it's very regional right now, right. as you can see, you know, based on vaccination rates and infection rates, things are very... And regional attitudes about, about things, it, it definitely varies. And so it's good on them to pay attention to that regionally or, or locally, for sure. Another important point you mentioned in your book that really intrigued me was that the enterprise content management of companies, how you think that should be owned by the chief data officer. I never really thought about that previously as falling under that workplace. I thought it was more under just the business side. They have the technology out there. They're the ones managing the data in that environment. Can you elaborate more on that? Yeah. The the general gist of that is that the way that we're managing structured data and unstructured data should be, there should be, extreme level of commonality in, in how that happens from a framework, from a conceptual, from governance standpoint, data integration, security, privacy, et cetera. And it really doesn't make a lot of sense today to maintain a separate function for enterprise content management or records management and information management. Some companies have three different functions sure. for, for that. And then I think in today's world, we need to think about not that all data is equal, but that it should be managed in, in a similar methodology, similar kind of role structure and, and even you know maturity model. There are going to be different technologies, of course, for managing enterprise content and files versus structured data. But the, the concepts and principles for how we're managing that data ought to be the same. And I've seen some companies, particularly an oil company, in uh, in Texas that said hey we're going to we're going to take our records management people out of the basement and make them part of the overall information management team and so now they have a information and, and records management organization which is great because the, you know the records management people have really been out in front when it comes to managing data or information as a, as an asset and there's a lot that we as data professionals can learn from our records management brethren and brothers and sisters who have been seen as second-class citizens in, in the organization. And there are probably a lot of the SMEs in the organization, too, when it comes to having that, that data yeah. knowledge to handle it. Especially as a lot of that those records all become digital, it's just another type of information. So yeah, I think it, what it comes down to is the methodologies and principles and economies of scale in, in managing all content and information similarly. That makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. So my my next question is, what's the biggest hurdle you normally face when helping organizations monetize their data? Well, if they're thinking about monetizing it externally, one of the challenges is that they're already sharing data with some of their customers and suppliers. And so it's become a bit of a slippery slope. So when I worked with a a retailer, for example, they say, yeah, we're already giving reports to our suppliers. And and I was like, well, you're giving them away for free. And they're like, yeah, that helps helps with the relationship. I said, there ought to be a point where we cut this off and say, all right, now there's some premium levels of insights and analyses and recommendations and predictions that we're going to make available to our suppliers. So it's where do you establish that that breakpoint between what you're giving away for free and then what you're going to start offering as a premium. A lot of it also comes down to culture. So there are cultural issues with data monetization. There's still a, a bit of a stigma with that word monetization where companies see we can't be selling our data. One, why not? And two, you can certainly do it in ways that re- retains privacy. So especially today in, in light of privacy regulations like GDPR and the California Privacy Act and Consumer Privacy Act and, and HIPAA in the healthcare world that companies are, are have defaulted to deciding that they can cannot monetize their customer data. And the problem with that is that they're not thinking about it broadly as they should or as creatively as they should. So we came up with this concept of what we call inverted data monetization, 
where let's say I'm a hospital and I know who my diabetes patients are, but I can't sell that to you. But I can sell your stuff to them without exposing who they are. I can make, if you have a healthy meal plan or a gym membership or a at-home glucose monitoring kit, I can introduce those products and services to my patients who are diabetes patients without exposing them to to you. And then I can just take a referral fee or some kind of cut of that action. So it's entirely possible to monetize your customer data without selling it. So again, it's about thinking creatively, really. And that's that's mostly where we we help our clients is opening their their minds to the, the art of the possible with data. That's a great way just to have a better return on your infrastructure and allow you to better Mm -hmm. invest in that technology to provide better solutions and just snowballs into a better data product. Yeah. So there's a lot baked into infonomics, a lot of good information, a lot of tactical steps. What's the first step an executive should take to monetize their data? Well, the first step is to you know to get agreement. I would imagine from you know other executives or in the in the board that the the company, at least anecdotally, is under leveraging its data assets and that the data warehouse or data lake or whatever is a cost center. And so, once they get this vision that the data lake or data warehouse could become a profit center then they're well on their way. So getting over that conceptual hurdle and then recognizing that there's a lot more we could be doing with, with data. So then the next step is to run these facilitated workshops that I, that I mentioned, where we look at a few different things. We look at one, what are the, the, the drivers of the business? What are the questions that you know they're afraid to ask? Or, or let's generate some new hypotheses. So we go through some hypothesis generating kinds of cons- exercises. And then next we look at examples of what others have done with data. So again, I have this library of hundreds of examples. We'll look at a couple dozen of them and say, let's tease them apart. And even though this is, might be in a, a different industry uh, than ours, what are the components here that we could leverage or that might make sense in, in, in our world? How could we ad- adapt this idea to, to our business? And then the third part is we lay out the data and just say, okay, let's look at what data is available. And a lot of times when we get these business people in the room, they don't even didn't even realize that some of this data was available in the first place. Once we lay it out and we say, we go through some exercises to see, all right, if we we tortured this data enough, could we get it to talk to us, right? In some way, I've heard somebody say. So that's the third part of that uh, workshop. And then, like I said, we take the ideas that are generated and in most workshops, we'll end up generating 30 or 40 ideas in in a week or two. Then we'll run them through a feasibility assessment. So that's really the the first part. And that part of that feasibility assessment has to be some type of economic analysis. We we take the top ideas that, that float to the top and say, you know, run them through a, a real analysis. Could we really sell this data? Who would buy it? What would they pay for it? Or if we injected this data back into some existing business process, how what's the Im- improvement in business process performance? And how does that translate into cost savings or revenue generation? And once you start connecting those dots, then and, and you get them <laughs> signed off by the, the CFO, then you're well on your way to, to really monetizing your data. Do organizations struggle assigning a numeric value to measure how how much value their data products is driving? And it could just be internally where you're not physically selling. Sure. How, how do you measure that? Yeah, a few ways to, to, to measure that. One, one is, what is, the first thing you want to know is, okay, you've got this this thing that's generating this function that's generating revenue, let's say, a sales process. Data is part of that sales process, but there's other assets and and resources that go into that sales process. So let's first kind of estimate what is the percentage of overall resources from a cost perspective that data comprises. And maybe that's 5%, maybe it's 3%, maybe it's 10% of the overall resources. And then let's look at 
how does having that data or not having that data affect that business process? Let's say we could purchase competitor pricing data and make that available to our salespeople. All right? And maybe that would help them sell better and faster and uh, increase profit and mar margins uh, on, on sales. But that data costs us something either to harvest or to purchase from an aggregator. So then we need to look at, okay, what is that cost? And then if we injected that data into that process, how much more could we sell? How much faster could we sell? How much could we lower the, the cost of sales? And that gives you an idea of what the value of that, that data is. Unfortunately, most companies don't look at that at all. They just they either take it for granted or it's a sunk cost of some kind and, and they don't really think about it. Now, we, we are working with some companies who's, who have realized that they are ingesting, acquiring, or purchasing thousands of data sources externally and need to rationalize that. One, they need to figure out, do they really need that data? Is it generating more value than it's costing them to acquire and manage and store and secure and, and all that? And is the data being leveraged throughout the organization as well as it could be to increase its effective margin? So those are things that we're helping some clients look at today, is rationalizing the external data assets that they're, they're integrating. Makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Where do you see the data landscape hitting over the next two to five years from now? I see a lot of companies starting to go beyond a passing interest in creating digital twins for either certain business functions or the overall enterprise itself to understand how if they transformed a part of that function or transform part of that business, what would the impact on the overall enterprise be in, in terms of personnel and financial and other resources? So. I see that taking a big, a large interest from organizations going forward, creating those digital twins. Obviously, artificial intelligence is going to be a way to, to improve the margin that organizations have on the, the cost side of their data and will ease a lot of the burden from data scientists. We're going to start to see a lot more of what we'll call the citizen data scientist. Somebody's not really a data scientist, but is encouraged by their organization to experiment with data and, and develop new models and, and test them. So we'll, see, we'll start seeing more business people do that. 97% of the MBA programs that I've surveyed have a course in, in analytics. So we're graduating a whole you know, crop of MBAs uh, and business, future business leaders who understand how to analyze data in a variety of ways. They understand how to illustrate it. They understand how to how to tell stories from it. They understand how to do more predictive and prescriptive and diagnostic analyses rather than just hindsight-oriented pretty pie charts. So that's all going to be really good. The, the problem I see, however, is that about 95% of MBA organizations do not have any course whatsoever on how to manage data. So we're graduating, again, this whole crop of business executives who know how to manage people and processes and numbers um, but not data itself, which is going to become problematic when data constitutes a larger and larger component of the intangible assets of an organization. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. One of the uh, my favorite quotes in your book is, it's silly that someone around here has an inventory of our office furniture, but nobody <laughs> company has an inventory of what data we have. I think that's really yeah. true. With, a lot of companies cannot account for all the data in the various departments and have it all right. centralized. Yeah, I met with a uh, energy company, and I, I had that conversation with them. I was reviewing their data strategy, and their data strategy at the top said, we want to manage data as an asset. 
And I said, well, that's great. But how come there's nothing in your data strategy about inventorying your data? How are you going to manage something that you haven't, you have no inventory of? And they said, I don't know. Maybe that's a good idea. <laughs> so they said, we inventory our trucks and our transformers and our generators. And I said, if data is a critical corporate asset, then you should have an inventory in it. I said, imagine a, a retailer with no inventory of what's on the store shelves or a CFO with no chart of accounts or a... HR executive with no company directory of uh, employee directory. I mean, those would be dismissible offenses. But today, CIOs, chief data officers, whoever get away with not having a complete or comprehensive inventory of the, the company's uh, data assets. So anyway, after this meeting with this energy company, your utility company, I went into the men's room and I saw that all of the toilets and sinks have inventory tags on them. <laughs> and I pointed that out to them. I said, you guys inventory your toilets, but you don't inventory your data? I yeah. said, there's something amiss here. <laughs> Why did they do that? It's obvious because toilets are a physical plant. They're part of the inventory. They're part of the, the physical assets on the balance sheet, assuming right. they, they own the building. Yeah. yeah, it's crazy. Other than your book, Infonomics, and the book you have coming out this spring, which I'm looking forward to checking out. Do you have a, yep. another favorite book that you would like to recommend and why? There, there's a few. There's a, a new book. I'll show you a few here if you want. Yeah. There's this new book by uh, Bill Schmarzo okay. on the economics of information. It's, he and I have been traveling the same circle in uh, trying to understand the economic value of information. He teaches classes on it, as do I. He's just lectured in my classes, and he's a great thought leader on that. A lot of good books on, on data governance that I'm starting to look into right now because we're doing some data governance strategy projects for organizations. There's a great second edition here by Dave Plotkin on data stewardship that I highly recommend, which among unique among many of the, the data governance kind of books actually has a complete chapter on how to how to establish metrics for data governance. One of the Bibles on data governance is the second edition by John Ladley of Data Governance. He's really a thought leader on that. And then for fun, there's a group, some great reading by folks like Christopher Serdak wrote a few years ago, a book called Data Crush, which I, I highly recommend. It's a good, good fun read. So that's just a few. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. So to wrap up, where can our listeners connect with you online to learn more about yeah, West Monroe and monetizing the um, Well, I'll tell you what, for any of your, your listeners who, who reach out to me on, on LinkedIn, I'll pick three of them who comment on the show and, and tag you and me on it or tag your, your show and me on it. And then I'll send them out a couple, I'll send them out an infonomics book. So I'll pick three folks. Love it. All right. Awesome. We'll, we'll do that. A little, little raffle, virtual raffle. And then obviously folks can connect with me on LinkedIn and then at, at West Monroe. LinkedIn is a good first place to, to connect with me. And if you're interested in this topic, people should follow the hashtag Infonomics. I, I tweet and post on that almost daily. Interesting things about data value or data monetization and, and so forth. And then if they're interested, I teach a couple, a few classes on Coursera on Infonomics. There's a two-part class on Infonomics and a one-part class. It's an executive introduction to analytics, which is a data literacy type class. And then there's a, a capstone class, which includes a, a an actual data monetization project that the students do. Awesome. So, so that's all available on Coursera. You just search for my name on Coursera. Okay. Awesome. All right. Check those out. Well, yeah. Thanks again for having me, Travis. I really uh, had a great time. Thank you so much, Doug. I did too. All right. I'm sure the listeners will gain as much as this out of I did. Thank you. Oh, all right. Keep being info savvy. Thanks for listening to Building the Backend. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. If you want to receive the latest data news in your inbox, join the newsletter at buildingthebackend.com. See you next time, Data Nation.